Welcome, one and all, to Reese Rambles, episode 24. Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you're all doing well. How are you doing? I can't actually hear you, but um, I hope you're doing well. And uh, I've got a lot of stuff that I want to cover this time around, including some of the latest happenings in the world of retro this week. So uh, I think without further ado, let's get on with it. So first up, just a bit of a ramble preamble, and I wanted to touch on my very latest video on my main channel on Control-Alt-Reese, the one where I uh, take a look inside some old computers that I picked up from the Northwest Computer Museum last year. And uh, th these these computers have been hanging around in my garage for uh, ages now. I mean, it was uh, it was towards the end of last year. It was like September time. So um, been sitting on them for far too long, but uh, they have been stored in a nice dry environment. So uh, they haven't uh, degraded any further. But I thought it was about time I had a look inside them and, and kind of made a bit of a plan as to what I wanted to do with them. Now, this all ties in with a conversation I was having with some fellow YouTubers. And uh, someone pointed out a channel called Mike Tech. Now, Mike's, tech, Mike's tech channel is really interesting. Uh, really, um, it's kind of like a kind of like an Adrian's Digital Basement kind of channel. If you've uh, if you're familiar with that channel, um, he, he gets old PCs and he kind of takes a look inside them and tears them down and and kind of talks about what all the different bits are. And he, he's very uh, he's very knowledgeable about the history of these things and um, just the way that it's edited and it, you know it's quite minimal editing, no fancy stuff, no flashy effects or, or that kind of thing, and it's all kind of live unscripted voiceover stuff and his channel has grown from well from nothing to uh, to uh, 10,000 subscribers in 6 months which is absolutely amazing growth and he's very very consistent with his uh, his release schedule and, and, and with the kind of the style of the videos and I, I find myself really getting into them and I was watching them and thinking I used to do stuff like this uh, kind of in the early days of my channel and I kind of drifted away from it because I, I had these grand ambitions of making big documentaries about history and stuff like that and um, actually sometimes it's it's just nice to kind of sit with someone and, and watch them tinkering with something and and talking about something that they're, they're passionate and uh, that they're knowledgeable about and I thought actually that, that that's kind of inspired me to um, you know, give give that style of video another go and, and just see kind of how it would work. Um, obviously, in this day and age, I, I like to think that I'm a bit better at the unscripted stuff, thanks to the rambles and the, the second channel um, videos and the, the, the supporter videos, which, of course, are all completely unscripted. And I like to think that uh, I've maybe developed a bit of the uh, a bit of the gift of the old gab. Um, perhaps not. Perhaps it's just a load of rambling nonsense. But um, I guess the proof is in the pudding. And the pudding, uh, the pudding, uh, in this case, is uh, is the analytics of, of this actual video. So I released it a few days ago, and um, I, I was absolutely amazed in the first few hours just how this video took off. Um, you know, it, in its first twenty four hours, it got over four thousand views, and yeah, it's dropped off now, as is the way with these releases. Usually, uh, usually it's sort of twenty four, forty eight hours or so, and then they they, they kind of uh, drop off into the background, and that's certainly the case with this one. But um, yeah, at the time of recording, uh, the video has been out for less than forty-eight hours, and it's got over five thousand views on it, which is, which is really really good uh, by the standards of my channel. I mean, I, I always say that um, if a video gets two thousand views in its first forty-eight hours, then I'm, I'm happy with that. Um, which I appreciate it if you have a kind of a smaller YouTube channel and you're, you're listening to this. It sounds like a lot. And don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, ungrateful for all of those views. But um, yeah, to, to be kind of more than double what I consider a, a good launch um, is great. And especially on a new format like this that I've um, 
you know, that I haven't tried for a long time. So um, very, very cool to see. But um, yeah, the inspiration for that came from a, a channel called Mike Tech, and I will link to him in the usual places. Um, but I, I just thought it was only fair to uh, give him a bit of a shout out. And also, if you enjoyed that video of mine, you, you will very much enjoy uh, his videos as well. So uh, go and check those out. So this week I have been mostly playing Rise of the Triad. You remember that? Um, just on a, on a bit of a tangent for a moment. You remember that uh, in the in in the nineties uh, here in the UK on on the TV we used to have uh, uh, like comedy sketch shows like Harry Enfield and um, the Fast Show and stuff like that. And do you remember the, there was this? I think it was the Fast Show. There was a guy who used to come out of his shed and he'd be like, "Oh, this week I have been mostly eating cake or something," and then like he'd go back into his shed and. For some reason, we all found that hilarious because I guess it was the 90s and we didn't have anything better to do. Anyway, anyway, that was a, a weird random memory there. But yes, this week, Night Dive Studios finally released their uh, much-anticipated remaster of Apogee's 1995 first-person shooter, Rise of the Triad, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, I, I remember playing it to death as a kid. Um, I, I had a friend... I know it's hard to believe, but I did. I did have a friend as a kid, and um, when we when we were very young, we started off. I started off with the Atari ST, and, and he had the. Um, I think he had an Amstrad CPC at one point, uh, the one with the built-in disk drive. Um, those, I distinctly remember those weird little three-inch three-inch discs. Um, but then the, his family kind of got into PCs really early on. I think his dad ran his own business at the time and needed a PC for accounts and things and and of course we always used to play games on it and all that kind of stuff one of the earliest games i remember playing this this is another tangent but um i'm sure it's related somehow uh, one of the earliest games i remember playing was uh, a platformer called dark ages which um I, i've really been meaning to make a video on at some point but um yeah anyway his family got into pcs and um, my dad also had a work pc that he used to bring home at weekends and um I, one of the earliest games i remember playing was wolfenstein 3d and you know, we we got our, our home PC in 1994, and then um, I think the year after that, 95, Rise of the Triad came out, and my, my friend got it, and uh, obviously I remember playing it around his house on his PC, and then of course uh, it ended up being installed on our PC as well, and we both loved it, and we both played it to death, and it, it was absolutely crazy. Uh, it's a, a really kind of gory, fast-paced, um, you know, lots of silly humour, Um you know, it, it's kind of hard to believe that um, it, it, it was only a year before Quake, um, considering, you know, Rise of the Triad was built basically on a modified Wolfenstein 3D engine and still used, you know, quite janky looking sprites. And um, it, it was all kind of cobbled together old technology and stuff. But, the, the, you know, the level design and, and the humour and, and the gore and all that kind of stuff kind of more than made up for uh, more than made up for it. Brilliant game. And it's one that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. So I downloaded it on release day and uh, you know, got it installed on my PC and I made some time to play it. And uh, I, I got um, I think I got like five achievements in the first 20 minutes of playing it. Not, not that I'm a, an achievement hunter specifically, but, um, you know, it, it was cool that they've kind of uh, set up all these crazy achievements for, uh, you know, uh, various things related to the game, like the God mode where you can like fire a, a, a lightning bolt out, out of your hand and... You know, there's, there's an achievement for uh, killing uh, five people with that and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to getting... Uh, I've already uh, I've already found shrooms mode on one of the levels. And, uh, of course, there was dog mode as well, which turned you into a dog. Um, and I think there's one relating to that as well. So looking forward to that. I've started with the shareware episode. And I have to say, I don't... Um, 
because because my friend had the uh, had the full version back in the day, I don't think I've ever played the shareware episode. So I've been playing through that, and I must admit, I'm I'm kind of struggling to struggling to get into it. Really, I think it's um. Because obviously, obviously, back in the day, like the, the way that shareware worked, like with Wolfenstein 3D and, and Doom, um, and uh, I think uh, I think Jazz Jack Rabbit, there were kind of some of the games that I remember playing early on the PC. Was that you would get the first episode for free, and then you could sort of mail off, um, you know, mail in and, and get the uh, the rest of the game and, and pay for it, you know, send them a check, and yeah, you'd get the rest of the episodes of the game. But I think Rise of the Triad, I'm probably I'm probably wrong here. I'm not quite sure where I've got this idea from, but. Um, I think the shareware episode was actually just kind of a cobbled together selection of levels that don't really sort of flow very well, and there's not really any kind of story. Um, I'm probably wrong here, but um, you know that, that, that's certainly the impression that I've got from playing it. So I am going to persevere because I, I do want to play the whole thing through to through to the end. Um, but I have to say, I, I think the um, I think the actual sort of main sort of um, retail campaign is is where it's at. Um, so so I'm just kind of uh, getting through the the, the shareware episode for uh, for completion's sake before I start on that but um hopefully it will pick up um hopefully it won't be a case of uh, you know uh, rose tinted glasses and, and not uh, not meeting your heroes and all that kind of thing i have to say that they've done an absolutely amazing job on the remaster i i play these things sat on my sofa with a game controller i know sacrilege playing first person shooters with with you know an xbox 360 controller but that's just the way it is nowadays that's how i tend to do my gaming and uh, yeah, you know, the, the, obviously this was originally a PC first-person shooter that was, uh, you know, like arrow keys and all that kind of stuff. But um, the, the way they've made it work with the controller and the way they've kind of updated the graphics, they've kept them very, um, you know, very kind of authentic and very uh, faithful to the original. Um, but uh, also, you know, obviously everything's much higher resolution and much faster frame rate and, and that kind of stuff. And um, as always, as is to be expected with Night Dive, they've done a brilliant job of it. Great game. I can highly recommend it if you played it back in the day and uh, very much looking forward to uh, getting stuck into that a bit more over the weekend. Now, I wanted to address this retro electro workshop thing which, if you haven't heard about it, is a new TV show uh, here in the UK on the Yesterday channel. And uh, the Yesterday is, uh, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's, if you're familiar with the History channel, which is an offshoot of Discovery, I think, um, it's kind of like a, a, a bit more of a sedate and uh, boring and British version of that. And they, they show a lot of reruns and stuff, but they also have their own original stuff on there, which is quite uh, quite interesting. I don't think many people are aware of that. Um, I know there's there's a series about electrifying electrifying classic cars, which I keep meaning to watch, which I, th I think is a yesterday uh, thing. But um, anyway, they've got this new show, Retro Electro Workshop, and they've uh, they've released a couple of episodes early on UK TV Play, which is their uh, you know the, the online on demand service. Um, I don't think it's accessible from outside of the UK without a VPN. I think it's like a BBC funded thing, but um, I will link to it uh, just in case. And yeah, the, the the whole premise of this show is that they go around finding retro, electrical, and even mechanical, and and indeed electro mechanical uh, things as I've spotted in one episode to fix up. And they either they either buy them and and fix them up and try to sell them for a profit, or in some cases, or at least one of the ones I saw in the first episode, you know, it, it's someone who has a collection and they've got something that's not working properly, and they kind of take it away and and fix it for them and, and show the repair process. 
And of course, if you watch stuff like The Repair Shop or indeed YouTube channels like mine and, and various others where we get old stuff and we fix it, uh, then this is of particular interest. And in the very first episode, uh, perhaps of even more interest to me, uh, they, they actually picked up an Atari 2600, which was quite cool to see. And this was a, this was a, a slightly later, 1980s, uh, four-switch model. And of course, um, they, they do the whole thing where they go to like a big junk shop and they rummage around through this stuff. And hey, you know, how genuine is it? You know, did, was it planted there? Did they have some scouts kind of go out a few weeks beforehand and, and kind of, uh, you know, find objects of interest and, and tell them to hold on to them and kind of, you know, put them in convenient places so they can find them when they're rummaging? I don't know. That, that's the magic of TV. We, we, we shouldn't read into it too much. Um, you know, it, 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 there's always a bit of uh, a bit of Hollywood magic uh, that goes into these things. But anyway, they found this uh, they, they found this Atari Twenty Six Hundred in the box uh, with a load of boxed games as well. I think like four or five boxed games, and it had um, a, a previous owner had, had done like a, a composite video mod on it, and they'd left the original uh, RF modulator in the box. Obviously, the bit that um, translate that translates that signal into a, a TV signal, which is how it would have originally worked back in the day. And they paid the guy £100 for it, which actually I don't think is uh, all that unreasonable. I think it's probably about right, um, you know, for a boxed... Was it working? I think... I can't remember if they tested it in the shop or not, but um, it, it wasn't working. Um, but the 2600s are quite easy to fix, really. Um, there's not really a lot that can go wrong with them. It's either the power supply or some kind of video issue, generally, unless, like, the TIA chips died, but... Um, yeah, gen generally they're they're relatively easy to fix, and obviously with those boxed games as well, there was some, you know, there's uh, off the top of my head there was Moon Patrol and, and Pac Man, kind of the two that kind of stuck out, but there were a few others as well. So hundred pounds, and they, they they take this boxed Atari twenty six hundred to uh, the the main guy, the main repair guy's workshop, and he plugs it all in, and of course there's no video output from it, and um, th th this has had, like I mentioned, it's had a, a composite video mod done to it in the past. And um, it, it looks really kind of DIY and really kind of homemade, and it's it's on like I don't know strip strip board or perf board or something, um, I think. And um, the other interesting thing about this twenty six hundred is that the top and the bottom case don't actually match. And I know this is an incredibly nerdy thing to to spot, but um, I'm going to point it out anyway. Um, on the on the later ones, like the one that they bought on the show, they moved the joystick ports to the top case. Uh, the, the joystick ports are on the back on the twenty six hundred. And uh, they're part of the top case on the later models, but on the earlier models they were part of the bottom case, and it actually had a, a modern or a modern. <laughs> we're talking about something that's forty years old here, but um, you know it, it, it had the newer top case uh, with the the top joystick ports, and it also had the uh, original bottom case with the uh, the bottom joystick ports. So whether it had been cobbled together by someone with a big collection of bits or something at some point, I don't know. I can't believe it would have left the factory like that, but. Um, it's also something they didn't mention in the uh, in the show, which if it was me making a video about it, I, I kind of would have pointed that out because that's quite interesting. But anyway, we can't fault them for that. And um, the the main repair guy, he hooks it up to a TV and he tests it, and of course there's no video output from it, so he uh, reinstates the original RF modulator, which of course the uh, previous owner very kindly included in the box, and yes, confirms that the thing is alive, but of course the picture from the RF modulator is absolutely horrific, as you would expect. And he goes on to uh, modify the thing 
properly with a uh, you know a new video output mod which he actually claims to design and build himself it actually shows the process of him kind of sketching out this this video amplifier circuit on paper and then kind of soldering soldering it all up there are a few off the shelf solutions for these but um Hey, that was good. Quite cool to see, I guess, you know, seeing someone uh, showing some initiative. Of course, a very basic kind of uh, amplifier circuit and, and one that's been done in various ways uh, over the years. But um, and then, of course, it, it gets it working, hooks it up to the TV and they uh, they take it back. The, you know, the, the two guys uh, that originally found it, take it back to their shop and they sell it in the shop and they make a hundred pounds profit on it. Sell it for 200 pounds, which again, Fully working, boxed, cleaned up with those boxed games, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, I guess it's not that unreasonable in this day and age. Perhaps a little bit on the high side. But um, I did like the fact that, uh, obviously, in, in a lot of these shows, like the salvage hunting ones with the where they go after, like, storage units and rummaging through people's houses looking for antiques and stuff, you know, they, they get to the end of the show and they're like, oh, you know, we, we paid £100 for this, but it's been valued by an expert at £2,000. So we've made £1,900 profit. And it's like, well, that's not how profit works, you know. <laughs> you have to sell it. Um, it. It didn't matter what it's been valued at. And I, I did enjoy the fact that they actually sold it at the end. And, um, you know, it, it, they did genuinely make £100 profit on it. They sold it to quite a young looking guy as well. I'm not quite sure why, what interest he would have had in an original Atari 2600. But there you go. I guess uh, interest in these things is kind of coming back. So all round, I actually... I quite liked it. I, I've seen some kind of negative uh, reaction and some negative feedback to this show. One thing that I really should point out, because it, it's something that a lot of people have been kind of having a good laugh about, is the, um, he obviously, with this 2600, they, they tested it and demoed it using CRT TVs, as you would have done back in the day. And it's very, very obvious that the, the image on the screen isn't real. It's not the actual image uh, as it you know as, as kind of generated live from the console it's been overlaid it's it's been composited uh, later on in uh, in in post production uh, there's a, there, there is actually one particular shot and this is very sad of me to point this out but um there was one particular shot from the back where you can actually see that uh, he's got the moon patrol cartridge in the 2600 and somehow he's playing pac-man on the tv with all the sound effects and everything else and um I guess because people would have been more familiar with Pac-Man than with Moon Patrol. But I'm not quite sure why they felt the need to kind of fake the image on the TV, particularly at the end as well when they fire up Pac-Man and start playing it. Um, I guess perhaps filming CRTs is a bit of a, a bit of a dark art that's kind of been lost and, and kind of not really a thing on modern equipment. You know, when you see like um, arcade machines and stuff in modern media, like like Stranger Things and stuff like that, uh, they, they quite often get um, a bit of a bad rap because they've swapped the screens for like modern flat panels. But actually, perhaps it's just because filming CRT screens is a pain in the arse. And I, I say that from the point of view of someone who works with them and, and films them for YouTube. Um, so maybe that's why. Maybe maybe they couldn't get a decent looking picture for kind of the final TV thing and, and they just overlaid it for that reason. Um, I don't really know, but the way they did it didn't didn't look very convincing. It did kind of ruin the uh, ruin the immersion a bit. But um, yeah, other bit. I've only watched the first episode, so um, they have released a couple since I watched that. Um, there, there was uh, in in the second one they do a Sinclair C five, and then in the third one, which I'm actually really looking forward to seeing, uh, they've done an electromechanical jukebox, which is really cool. I've seen um, a couple of those on the repair shop. 
which is another excellent uh, TV program all about uh, all about repairing old stuff. And uh, I really love electromechanical jukeboxes and, and, and you know pinball tables and, and how all of that works. It's absolutely genius how they were kind of designed and put together. So looking forward to watching those. But um, yeah, the, 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 I should mention the other thing that they covered uh, in this first episode as well, just because it's also kind of relevant. Um, there was a, a guy who had a collection of old radios and, and they kind of picked one up and, and fixed it for him. And they, they essentially recapped it. So they took out the big old, um, you know, like three in one big can type thing capacitor and uh, replaced it with three modern capacitors. And just talked a little bit about, um, you know, wrapping the legs around the contacts to make it mechanically secure. And then, you know, before you solder it and using leaded solder and all that kind of stuff, which... Uh, you know, again, from someone who's done this exact job on my Danset record player, which was a video I made a while back now, um, yeah, it was quite nice to see. And then obviously the radio was all working at the end of it and uh, quite nice. So uh, this thing has had a bit of a negative reception in, in the retro world, but um, I think it's TV. It's got to have broad appeal, you know, and I, I quite liked it. It's not... Uh, it's not bad. There's, there's certainly been far, far worse um, treatments of our hobby uh, in in the mainstream media. So I'm going to give it a pass. And again, I will link to that in uh, in the usual places if you want to go and check it out. But uh, yeah, that's Retro Electro Workshop. So finally, hot off the press, something that has just been announced is the 8-Bit Doe Mechanical Keyboard. And um, it's a mechanical keyboard. Now, if you're familiar with their range of controllers, and I use their uh, their M30 uh, Bluetooth controllers with my Mister and, and occasionally with PC and stuff as well, uh, which are styled after the original Mega Drive pads, and they're really, really good, um, really low latency, really well-built, really nice feel to them, to the D-pad and the buttons and stuff. I can highly, highly recommend them. And um, I also bought their, I can't remember what the model number is, but I also bought their NES-styled arcade stick as well. Uh, which I use with my Mister for playing arcade games, and again, a uh, really, really solid, well-built piece of kit, and uh, really nice feel to it. Proper, um, you know, genuine uh, arcade parts in there, buttons and, and joystick, and it's all moddable if you want to change the joystick or change the buttons or whatever. And um, yeah, you know, they, they just make really, really sort of high-quality uh, peripherals, and they're actually quite reasonably priced for what they are as well. So it was very interesting to see that they had tackled a mechanical keyboard. And again, it's quite reasonably priced for what it is. I mean, the UK pricing hasn't been announced yet, or at least I couldn't find it. Um, but yeah, $99.99. It's um, it's a 10-keyless keyboard, I think the, uh, the pro gamers call it. So it hasn't got the numeric keypad on the side. And this thing is it's styled after... Uh, you know the Nintendo, the NES or the or the Famicom. They actually do two different models. There's a, a NES styled one and a Famicom styled one with those two different color schemes. I love the Famicom style one with the uh, you know the dark red and and the gold um, accents and stuff. It's a, it's a really really uh, classy looking thing. Um, it's a shame they haven't done a black version because with my Mister setup, I've generally gone for all black. Um, just as a theme, I use the uh, the Mr. Multi-System in the black uh, V1 case. And uh, yeah, it would have been uh, it would have been nice to have a nice matching black mechanical keyboard, especially at that price. I'll probably, it, I think that would have been a day one purchase if that was the case, but um, I'll, I'll probably wait it out now and, and see if they do release one. But uh, the, 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 there's some really interesting touches to this I, I really should point out. So 
it uses um it uses uh, I don't even know how to say this kale k e i l h is the brand uh, keel keel box white switches i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing i'm not really into mechanical keyboards in a big way um i do own one a wasd keyboard i think it's got blue switches in it maybe with dampeners maybe it's a very long time since i ordered that but i'm um, still quite happy with that um but yeah, so it's not uh, it's not your Cherry MX uh, super high price ones, which I guess is how they managed to keep the price down. And this thing is apparently solid aluminium. So again, like all of their other peripherals, really solidly built. And yeah, it, like I say, it, it's got some really cool touches to it. So it uses its own dongle, its own 2.4 gigahertz dongle, like their other stuff. Uh, also supports Bluetooth, LE and wired USB. Has its own built-in uh, lithium-ion rechargeable battery. So you don't have to worry about changing batteries, which is always a pain in the ass with my... Uh, my uh, wireless keyboard that my Microsoft one that uh, I very very occasionally use and it's got um, <laughs> in addition to the styling that's kind of based on these classic consoles it's got these um, it's got a power LED which seems to be styled after the Commodore 64 which, which looks really cool actually and it comes with these giant super buttons and that's what they describe them as super buttons and you get a set of two with it. And these are like big red buttons that are kind of external to the keyboard. There's two of them. Um, God only knows what you'd use them for. I guess you map them to some kind of macros. They might be handy for like video editing or something maybe. You know, I could map one to, you know, one to cut and one to select or something. I don't, I don't know, like ripple delete. So I can just like mash the button and delete a big chunk of the timeline in one go or... I don't know. People are going to find uses for these things, but um, just really weird that they're included, but quite cool. Um, and I guess they're probably, um, you know, they're going to be really well put together as well. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just a really nice, nicely made, nicely designed, solid looking thing. And I assume uh, being from 8-bit dough, it works you know, perfectly, as you would expect. And, uh, you know, kind of looking forward to uh, seeing some of those and, and seeing people get their hands on them. But um Really interesting thing. One thing I will say is um, the, the choice of styling is quite odd because obviously they do a range of controllers which are kind of, um, you know, they're, they're reproductions of existing controllers. They do like the PC Engine and the, the Turbo Graphics and, like I said, the Mega Drive and the SNES and the uh, the NES. And if, you're, if you've got something like a Mr. Setup, um, they, they actually sell... They actually sell dongles for these, uh, dedicated 2.4 gigahertz dongles, which is kind of how they got started. So if you've got a SNES, for example, you can buy their wireless pad and you can plug the dongle into the console and you can play on it wirelessly, um, you know, like a modern console, which is really cool. And it was only kind of a bit later on that they started to add like USB support and Bluetooth support and that kind of thing. So you could use them with other systems. And if you've got something like a Mister setup that can obviously run loads of different consoles and computers, then you can collect multiple controllers if you want and use, you know, have them all connected via Bluetooth and use the right controller for the right system just to add a, a bit more to kind of that feel of authenticity and stuff, which is really cool. Not a path I've gone down, um, something I've very actively avoided because I would just end up with absolutely loads of the things and, uh, you know, a, a lot poorer as a result. But that's that kind of leads me to my... Uh, my kind of one and one negative, not not negative, but my, the one thing I would question about the styling of these things, um, you know, why base them on on consoles that didn't have a keyboard originally? And all right, yeah, the Famicom did have the um, the family basic pack, uh, which was you know like a white keyboard with uh, the with dark red keys. But um, yeah, you know, pe people don't associate keyboards with 
the NES and the Famicom, you know, they're more likely to think of the Atari ST or the Amiga or the Commodore 64 or, you know, something like that. In fact, the pictures on their website have it next to an IBM PC, an actual real proper IBM PC. And it doesn't look quite right. You know, you kind of expect to see like a Model F or a Model M with one of these machines. And um, you'd think they would have made the styling a bit closer to that. But then saying that, there are a lot of keyboard manufacturers out there that are already doing that. So maybe that's why they've decided to take it down a slightly different route. But um, yeah, give us a uh, give us a more plain uh, black option that matches the rest of my Mr. Setup. And I would be all over that. But um, ultimately, otherwise, I, I do think it's a great thing. Um, it, you know, it looks really good. and really looking forward to uh, seeing some people reviewing those. But uh, at $99.99, quite reasonable for a mechanical keyboard. And it's a bit of fun. So very cool. And that's all I have for you this week. So thank you very much for listening once again. And if you're a regular, you will know that I like to give a shout out to a YouTube channel that has inspired me or otherwise caught my attention in the uh, preceding week. And of course, in this case, that's going to be Mike Tech. So I'll link to him in the usual places. Don't know the guy at all, but um, Adrian assures me that he's a nice guy and he's met him and he knows him and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, he does teardowns of old PCs. Uh, has the most amazing set of biceps I've seen on YouTube. I don't know if it's carrying all, all those old PCs around that does it or what, but um, it has in, also inspired me to get down the gym as well as make, as well as make videos. Um, but yeah, there he is. Go and check him out if you like, uh, uh, you know, live commentary on uh, graphics cards and sound cards and, and stuff from the 90s, then uh, he will be right up your street. So I hope you enjoy your weekend and I hope I have uh, started it off in the right way with my positive ramblings on the world of retro. That's all I have for you in this episode. Have a wonderful weekend and I shall see you next time. Although, actually, I won't see you, but yeah, well, you know what I mean. Bye.